Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. So, uh, Tracy, did you have sea monkeys when you were a kid? I did not have sea monkeys personally, but when I started... Well, hang on, hang on. When I started at HowStuffWorks, which is now really almost a decade ago... You're making the most astonished face. For some reason, we had an office set of sea monkeys for a while. Uh, I thought for sure this was because of some kind of article on the site, but I cannot find said article. So now I think maybe we just had sea monkeys for fun. Uh, I had lots of batches of sea monkeys when I was a kid. Uh, more than a few packets were purchased throughout the years. I've been debating over getting more lately, but uh I had one super hardy batch of them when I was working in a library. They lived in a little tank on my desk, and they propagated and kept going for like two years until a cold snap got them when the library lost um power, and so there was no heat, and it kind of got very, very icy in there. But uh despite all those fabulous packaging cartoons featuring tiny humanoid sea creatures having wacky fun and wearing wacky clothes, sea monkeys are, as everybody knows, just brine shrimp. And they're even sometimes referred to as kind of an elaborate hoax of marketing, uh, like a classic case of selling a lot of sizzle with no real steak. But the real story of sea monkeys and their inventor is actually pretty surprising in some ways. It's kind of like uh, when we thought, oh, we'll talk about the people that discovered the Verosifaca, that cute little lemur, and then it turned out they had done some horrible things. It's kind of similar in that regard. Although it did not come as a surprise to me this time because I knew. You knew ahead of time and pursued it. Pursued it anyway. Yes. Uh, They are really interesting creatures to look at, in my opinion, even though they're not making civilizations full of castles and whatnot on your desk. I concur, but I like all of the creatures, so. So we're going to start with the story of Harold von Braunhut, which is the inventor of sea monkeys. The man himself was as intriguing and unbelievable as many of his inventions. He was born Harold Nathan Brownhut on March 31st, 1926 in Memphis, Tennessee. And when he was still very young, the family moved to New York City. Yeah, he has like a one of those wild histories that kind of comes across as a lot of tall tales, but a lot of it is substantiated, uh, although there are some question marky ones. Uh, as a young man, he actually raced motorcycles as the Green Hornet. And later on, he would transition into managing talent. So if you've ever seen, and you may have only seen the cartoon versions, like divers that jump from great heights into impossibly shallow bodies of water, or mentalists who can read minds and bend spoons, those are the kinds of acts that he managed. Uh, and he was really, at his heart, a showman. He was also ever the novelty man. And aside from the novelty acts that he managed, he also sold novelty products like invisible goldfish, uh, guaranteeing their invisibility to consumers. He also invented x-ray specs, so those glasses that were supposed to let you see through all manner of things. Yeah, it's funny. In all of the research that I did, particularly some of the more modern journalism pieces, um, (laughs) they'll talk about how everyone, every kid that bought x-ray specs was trying to look through people's clothes. But if they were questioned, they said it was like a much more, no, I'm trying to look through walls, but I don't know. Uh, Eventually, Von Braunhut owned 195 patents, and those are for all kinds of novelties and other inventions, including bulletproof fabrics and insect observation kits. 
People described him as eccentric, similar to a cartoon character come to life. Uh, They also described him as a sweet older gentleman who could talk your ear off at a wedding. But his story goes way beyond sea monkeys. And while he's said to have turned down a licensing partnership with the company because of other products in that company's catalog that he thought were too risque, his own story actually has a pretty dark streak running through it. But first, we're going to talk a little bit about the creatures that made him famous in the toy and novelty world. And before we dig into those briny little pets, uh, do you want to do a quick word from a sponsor? Yeah, we know it's early, but we're trying to keep a big chunk of the story together. Yeah, the next two sections are are really his two big inventions, and I want to keep those together. So we'll be right back with those. So the exact moment that inspired Von Braunhut to create sea monkeys is a little bit unclear, not terribly, but there are two different versions of the story that go around. Uh, it's pretty universally accepted that this happened in 1957. And in one version of the tale, he just noticed brine shrimp in a bucket that were like part of a... Um, uh, bait bucket. And in another version, he noticed them being sold in a pet store as food for other marine life. And the pet store story is by far the more popular of the two. It's the one that he told most often in his life, particularly later in life, any interviews that he gave, which weren't a whole lot. He always said it was the pet store. In either case, he became completely fascinated by the idea of brine shrimp. And because they can naturally survive for years in kind of a suspended animation while dried out, they're easily packageable, which meant, in his mind, they could be marketed and sold. Yeah, so in 1960, sea monkeys first appeared in comic book ads, although they had not been christened with their famous name yet. In those early ads, they were marketed as Instant Life, and they sold for a mere 49 cents. Instant Life was not an instant success just did not grab the attention of comic book readers the way he hoped that they would. And so he put the product through a rebranding. Yeah, so if we have any uh, comic book fans in our our listener base, they might recognize the name Joe Orlando. He was a comic book artist. He was an editor at DC Comics. He was an associate publisher on Mad Magazine, all at various stages of his career. He did a lot of other really impressive things. And he was actually the artist that was responsible for the art that accompanied the upgraded Sea Monkey packaging. So those cartoons that we know so well, in which in many cases sparked imaginations and lured in consumers, were his work. With those cartoons and a new name, Instant Life was relaunched as Sea Monkeys in 1964, and the name was inspired by the brine shrimp's long tail. I always wondered that, and now I know. Yeah. And now, uh, the brine shrimp that Harold von Braunhut had first encountered, which was Artemia salina, are not quite the same ones that are sold in Sea Monkey kits. Yeah, he teamed up with a marine biologist to first figure out how to mix the nutrients in dry form that you could add to tap water to create the ideal environment for his instant life. Incidentally, the medium that he created to treat tap water and make it into the sea monkey paradise has never been duplicated by another lab, despite various attempts. So for a long time, only Harold and his wife, Yolanda, knew the formula. Even so, he was always working on improvements uh, right until the end of his life. Yeah, they allegedly mix those right on their, like, private property in a barrel, and then they would distribute them in the packets. Uh, but then after they had figured out this sort of 
perfect nutrient balance mix, he further developed these tiny marine critters to be really hardy. So like we said, they were not the Artemia salina that he had initially encountered. So he and that same biologist worked for years to constantly improve the product by crossbreeding different species from the genus Artemia until they got the breed that continues the sea monkey line today. And that's now called Artemia Neos, which is N-Y-O-S, and that N-Y-O-S stands for New York Oceanic Society, and that's the lab where this species was developed. TransScience was the company Von Braunhut founded to manufacture sea monkeys. And from the early 1960s on, the company was always promoting this amazing product. What's really funny is that if you read trade publication ads for Sea Monkey stock, it's almost identical in tone to the ads that were run in comic books for direct sales. There's a lot of all caps for emphasis. The overall vibe is one of excitement, excitement, excitement. Come to where the money is, Sea Monkey Country, which is the ads that went out to retailers and sounded a lot like the ads to buyers. Yeah, it it was kind of funny. And Von Braunhut was the copy man behind all of this very enthusiastic verbiage. (laughs) He, uh, it's his copy has this sort of wonderfully vaudevillian feel to it. So it's like part huckster and part mad scientist and all entertainer. Initially, the brick and mortar retail market had eluded Von Braunhut. Just before he brought his sea monkeys to market, another company, Whammo, had tried an instant fish toy as well. And that had not gone very well because the product did not work. And that made the entire retail arena petrified of doing anything similar. But once sea monkeys established themselves through direct sales, retailers started to come around and wanted to have them in stores also. And that, at that point, they really cemented sea monkeys in like the history of kitsch and the history of toys. In 1992, there was an attempt to bring sea monkeys to television. It was written by Howie Mandel and directed primarily by Sean McNamara, who would go on to direct lots of shows for the Disney Channel. The show was pretty abysmal and it only lasted 11 episodes before cancellation. Yeah, if you just want to, like, torture yourself for a few minutes, you can find a lot of those on YouTube. Uh, they're awful. They're really, really awful. Uh, on October 29th of 1998, more than 400 million sea monkey eggs went into space. They were on the same mission that made John Glenn officially the oldest man to fly in space. So that was the nine-day STS-95 mission aboard the space shuttle Discovery. And during that mission, the tiny brine shrimp were exposed to radiation, zero-G, and of course the violent force of reentry. They were hatched eight weeks after they came back to Earth and seemed completely unaffected by all of that time away from terra firma and the things that happened while they were in space. Yeah, so they're, this is kind of a fun little experiment. It's, that's one of those things that gets taught a lot in elementary uh, school classrooms when they're talking about sea life and suspended animation. Uh, and the next thing we're going to talk about is a very different type of invention that Von Braunhut created, and it was absolutely not a novelty. It was a weapon called a Kyoga Agent M5. And the Kyoga, which was marketed as the Steel Cobra, was intended, according to advertising, to be a concealed weapon that you could deploy in the event that you found yourself face-to-face with a mugger or other attacker. The ad copy in magazine advertisements read, Kyoga, the Steel Cobra is an automatic, magnetically triggered steel whip that is armed with a heavy caliber striking tip. When every second counts, this instant action feature frees you from the need to first locate a push-button trigger in order to fire it at your attacker. 
because it goes off by human reflex action alone. It always works when needed. And there's actually a ton of copy in those ads. Uh, it's very wordy, and it goes on to extol the virtues of this small weapon, promising that the steel coils can make contact through a leather jacket. Uh, it also promises that a blow to the head or jaw can knock an attacker out cold. So basically, basically this was a small trigger-action spring-loaded baton that could be purchased for nineteen ninety-five plus postage in the early days. Yeah, and we'll actually share a link to one of the ads for it uh, offering this 1995 deal. And early on in the life of the Cayuga, Mr. Brownhut was actually arrested on illegal weapons charges when he tried to pass through LaGuardia Airport security with a half dozen of them in his briefcase. And he got out of the charges by saying, no, this is not a weapon that's ever been listed as forbidden. But it's an interesting side note to the story. In 1981, Burt Reynolds used a Kyoga in the film Sharky's Machine. And even though the movie was kind of a flop, it basically was a great advertisement for this steel whip. Over years, prices for the Kyoga went up. It eventually retailed for $59.95. And the advertising shifted from that kind of aimed at women, like this is a great self-defense tool, to if you need a gun but can't get a license. Uh, that was actual copy that was used in their later advertising. And this is going to lead us to kind of the dark part of the story. So before we get to that, uh, let's have a word from a sponsor. So getting back to uh, Von Braunhut and the Cayuga, uh, and we're getting into kind of more modern history, but because this person's sort of fame and, and notoriety cemented a little bit earlier in the century, he becomes a pretty fascinating figure. And even though a lot of this revealed fairly recently, it's pretty important to the story. So in the late 1980s, uh, the Cayuga catalyzed basically what became a public image calamity for Von Braunhut. So at the time, the leader of the white supremacist group, the Aryan Nations, whose name was Richard Butler, was in trouble with the law. He had been indicted by a federal grand jury for seditious conspiracy to overthrow the government by violence. And in a fundraising letter to his fellow white supremacists that Butler sent out around this time, he included a brochure for the Cayuga. He also included messaging that the inventor and manufacturer of the weapon had pledged $25 to his defense fund against the federal charges for every Cayuga that was sold. Unsurprisingly, it did not take long for journalists to get a hold of this information and look deeper into it, and the news was not great. Butler, uh, the sort of the first wave of problems was when Butler, uh, again, head of the Aryan Nations, confirmed to the Spokesman Review, which was a paper out of Spokane, Washington, that yes, he and Von Braunhut were friends, they had known each other a long time, and that the inventor had supported the Aryan Nations for quite a while. The Washington Post ran a story soon after exposing even more affiliations with hate groups. Not only was Harold von Braunhut a frequent attendee of the Aryan Nations World Congress, he also had ties to the Ku Klux Klan and had helped an Ohio branch of the KKK purchase firearms. He also published his own anti-Zionist newsletter full of rather terrifying and shocking rhetoric. It was. I read a few snippets of it, and I, I sent an instant message to Tracy, and I was like, "We, I don't want to say any of these words on the air while we record. They're just, they're exactly the horrifying things you would imagine, perhaps more graphic. 
in an odd snippet of detail, it also came out that while attending these area nations gatherings, von Braunhut often wore a clerical collar and claimed to be an ordained priest. I was not able to hunt down any confirmation that he was ever actually ordained. He may or may not have been, but I just thought it was odd that he only lived that image when he was sort of involved in these groups. So the real irony in the Washington Post article was that it also outed von Braunhut as a Jew. In a completely bizarre twist, it appeared that a major funder and friend of the anti-Semitist movement was indeed Jewish, at least by birth, uh, according to multiple friends of the Braunhut family. And you would think that this would mean that the Aryan nations would want to sever ties with him. But despite this revelation, he was still welcome uh, with the supremacist group, most likely, most people uh, theorize, due to the funding that he continued to donate. He had deep pockets and he gave them a lot of money. In fact, he even ended up presiding over the funeral of Richard Butler's wife long after this story broke, wearing, of course, his full clerical ensemble. Throughout all the coverage in the press about these allegations and plenty of people corroborating them and photographs of him posing in his priestly garb in front of a Nazi flag, von Braunhut denied any racism or anti-Semitism. But then in the late 1980s, he gave an interview to the Seattle Times in which he openly made racial slurs against Korean shop owners and then said, you know what side I'm on. I don't make any bones about it. Uh, however, from that point on, von Braunhut basically refused to answer any questions from reporters about his heritage or his stance on racism or neo-Nazism. It's also at about this time that he left New York and moved to Maryland to set up an animal preserve called the Montrose Wildlife Conservation on a 70-acre property. Yeah, he uh, it's sort of one of those weird, contradictory image puzzle pieces that he, you know, was involved with all these really horrible things. He also really loved animals and nature and wanted to, like, study and preserve them. It's very hard for me to get my head around all of these contradictory pieces. Uh, It's a lot easier to think of people who have those sorts of views as, like, mustache-twirling villains. Yeah. So then when you're like, oh, but he was really quite kind to animals, it's like, well... Uh, it almost makes it more distasteful because you can't kind of compartmentalize it super easily. And like we said, a lot of people described him as just this charming, eccentric, sweet, kooky old man as he got older. So it's it's a very complex puzzle. Uh, in 2000, a Los Angeles Times article about Von Braunhut relayed the news that there had been two different distributors that had annulled their Sea Monkey licenses because of their unease with Von Braunhut's personal politics. First was Laramie Limited. There's kind of a he said, she said going on with this one. Von Braunhut claimed that he wanted to end the business partnership because Laramie was neglecting sea monkeys in favor of bigger sellers like the Super Soaker water gun. Al Davis, who was an EVP at Laramie at the time, told a much different story. He claimed that after hearing about about Von Braunhut giving money to hate groups, he called the inventor on it. So according to the Davis version of the story, Harold told him Hitler wasn't a bad guy. He just received bad press. Yeah, that's a quote that gets used in a lot of different stories. That's the first story that I saw it in or the earliest story that I saw it in. But it it gets reused a lot because it is in terms of soundbite, like you kind of can't ask for a, a better sensationalist quote. 
another licensing venture in the 1990s involved the company Big Fun, which specializes in novelty keychains. And they were working on like this little keychain mini aquarium that you could put like one or two sea monkeys in and carry them with you throughout the day. And initially, Von Braunhut assured Big Fun President Alan Dorfman that all of that bad press about him and his uh, ties to the Aryan Nations was really just rumor mongering that was started by an enemy that he was having legal issues with. And initially, Dorfman accepted that explanation until a few months down the road, there was a New York Times article that uh, ran that identified the sea monkey inventor as a speaker at that year's Aryan's. Aryan Nations Congress. And so pretty quickly thereafter, the business arrangement was severed. According to George C. Atamian, who is an executive with Educational Insights, when his company bought the license to Sea Monkeys in the mid-1990s, von Braunhut had agreed to cease all of these public political activities. When Tamar Brat, the L.A. Times reporter who broke the story of the business fallout because of von Braunhut's political views, he pushed Atemian on the issue of the inventor's involvement with the white supremacist movement. At that point, the Educational Insights executive admitted that he had never personally confronted von Braunhut, but that he would. Atemian contacted Brat a couple of weeks later, and he said that he had confronted von Braunhut and that von Braunhut had denied his involvement and that in his mind that was all that was needed. Yeah, there's a, a sort of a more complex, it gets a little soap opera-y element to that. And it's all in the, the LA Times article, which we'll link to you. There was actually a, one of his anti-Zionist newsletters that this reporter handed a Tamian and another executive involved and said, like, uh, this is, you know, his work. This is the newsletter. This is the stuff he's spreading. Like, are you really comfortable working with this person? And they both independently are said to have asked von Braunhut, did you write this? And he said no. And the one guy said to him the evidence that made it completely believable when von Braunhut denied his involvement was like, no, this is a man who loves copy and he loves writing and he really prides himself. And this newsletter is terribly written. So to me, that's the evidence. It's almost like they're in a, a bit of denial at that point about the person they're working with. But uh, in 2003, Harold von Braunhut died after a fall in his home. And since that time, there has been sort of a constant stream of various legal battles around sea monkeys and who has the rights and whether they're paying von Braunhut's widow her royalties, etc. Nothing outside of like usual business jockeying, but that's just what's going on with the company. After about 1995, it seems that von Braunhut kept his word to Atamian and the rest of the leadership of Education Insights. Uh, he either ceased his ties to the Aryan nations or started hiding his involvement. The Anti-Defamation League, who had amassed a substantial dossier on his connections to hate groups up to that point, doesn't really have anything else to track after that. Yeah, so he it does seem like he kept his word uh, in that business deal where he said he would no longer publicly be involved in any of these uh, hate groups. But Sea Monkey sales uh, have made Transcience and their various affiliates and licensees many millions of dollars throughout the years. And National Sea Monkey Day is May the 16th. Although we don't know where that started. Yeah. Is, is that like their own marketing thing or... We do not know. Uh, 
I was looking at one of those like, you know, wacky holiday each day websites where they track these sorts of things. And they're like, we can't figure out where this originated. If it was marketing or just like a super fan that sort of spread the word, kind of like how Talk Like a Pirate Day grew organically. Mm -hmm. They don't know if this was a similar thing where it was like a fan group that started it and it just kind of became accepted without anyone questioning it. So that's a scoop of Sea Monkey Day. Number one, I think if this were going on now. There would not be any, oh, I will just stop having ties to these white supremacy organizations. Like, I, I think the, uh, bad press and furor on the part of the internet would not let that stand. Yeah, I had a similar thought while I was researching this. Like, there's just no way. One, he couldn't. The odds of him having been able to be involved in these sorts of activities for so long without anybody realizing it or calling him on it, although there were allegedly rumors throughout the toy industry about him leading up to that, but there wasn't any evidence, I guess, that people knew, it it just wouldn't happen. It would be outed so much more quickly and so vocally and so publicly through social media that I think it, it would be a lot different if this all went down today. Yeah. I also had no idea until... uh. I got this outline from you, basically, which is kind of weird because I feel like I I know so many, um, like there are so many kind of urban legends about, you know, so-and-so CEO of this organization is a racist and it's not actually a true thing. Right. (laughs) And in this case, where he really was having direct involvement with all these white supremacist organizations, I had never heard anything about it until this episode. Yeah, that L.A. Times article, which is a really good read um, that we referenced referenced a couple times, he even mentions at the beginning, like, oh, I thought I was doing kind of a fluff piece about nostalgia toys and, you know, sort of kitsch in the modern era and how there's this new wave of interest in toys from the 50s and 60s. And then with minimal digging and like he reached out to the Anti-Defamation League after he started hearing these things and they sent him a copy of this huge dossier that they had amassed. He was like, this is a very different article than I started writing. Uh, we don't know what that's like at all. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's so sort of mind blowing to me. This again, it's the disparity of his image of being this sweet, wacky guy, like a nutty inventor and a, a, a little bit of a flim flam man in some ways. And then also being part of this just horrific thing and that he was Jewish and part of all of this is really hard for me to get my brain around. But uh, he is deceased, so no one can ask him. And if he weren't, he probably would not want to answer any of those questions anyway. Do you know if his widow is still living? She is. She was involved in a legal action as recently as about 11 or 12 months ago. Uh, But she also will not answer any questions about his background or his political views. So. Wow. That's pretty much a lockdown on all such discussion. Uh, it's fascinating stuff. Uh, in other news, I have listener mail, which is not about white supremacists. I was going to say, please don't Although, be about white supremacy. It, it, is, it is related to uh, various namings of people. I actually have two pieces of listener mail, which are corrections to uh, terminology that we used. So the first one is from our listener, Fancy. I can't even describe how much I absolutely love that name. Uh, and she says, Hi, Holly and Tracy. I enjoy the podcast, but the use of a misnomer in the recent Henry Hudson two-part episode spurred me to send this email of caution. 
In Henry Hudson Part 2, you discuss the ill-fated 1610 to 1611 voyage of the Discovery, and you repeatedly referred to Hudson's and the crew's interactions with the local people around Hudson and James Bays as being with Native Americans, and that's an inaccurate term by local Canadian standards. Use of this term, among others, gives rise to certain sensitivities in Canada. It may be written by historians that we are referred to as Indians or Native Americans, but both terms have their issues. Indians, though still the legal term used in Canada, is now a rather noticeable misnomer, which obviously now refers to peoples from India. And Native Americans doesn't suit those of us with ancestral ties to Canada's indigenous peoples. Uh, and there are growing social connotations to the word native, which can include more than indigenous people, i.e. it can be applied to anyone born in a location. For a variety of reasons, the most common and accepted term to generally refer to peoples in questions is First Nations peoples, in order to make it clear that what is being discussed is a grouping distinct from the Inuit or the Metis, the two other groupings that make up Canada's indigenous peoples. This email may seem like a pedantic point. However, it will benefit listeners to understand that certain terms and labels come loaded with baggage in Canada, which can lead to misunderstandings. This doesn't seem pedantic to me because this is a very specific thing that like I would not have known. I have heard the term First Nations peoples, but I did not realize there was that divide in preference uh, between Native American, which is usually used in the U.S. Yeah. So, so I, this is good info. Yeah, I would say this is this is exactly the kind of correction that we want. Uh, because you and I, it's important to both of us that we use the right terminology for people and that we use the terminology that's the most respectful of the people that we are talking about. Exactly. Uh, and, and while we do our best, sometimes we're going to mess that up. And so learning the right way, I would much rather learn the right way than to continue to be inadvertently ignorant and say things that are potentially offensive. So, uh, yeah, that, that does not go into the annoying pedantry <laughs> column. Not me. at all. Um, like, that's not at all. Like, when somebody argues with us about the dictionary definition of the word, when the dictionary agrees with us, like, this is... <laughs> that's the, pedantry. <laughs> yeah. This is the correction that we want to hear to, so we can be better. Yes. And Fancy signs off as nitpicking First Nations Canadian. I do not see her that way at all. That's exactly no. the kind of stuff we need to learn and know. So thank you, because that's great insight that... I just did not ever come across, uh, so I'm glad to have it now. The other one uh, is sort of similar in vain. It comes from our listener, Sina, uh, and she loves to listen to the show on her commute, and she says, I enjoyed your episode on the Varro Brothers. I grew up in Botswana and just wanted to make a couple of corrections for you. A person from Botswana is called a Motswana, and the plural of that is Batswana, so that's, I'm maybe pronouncing it incorrectly, but it's a B-A-T, not a B-O-T. Also, the capital city of Gaborone is pronounced more like Heborone with a guttural G and the accent on the final E. So uh, I'm guessing Gaborone, and I may be still butchering that, but I am trying my hardest. Uh, no way you could have known either of those things, but now you do. Exactly the same situation. We are glad to have this knowledge. Uh, it was nice to hear a little bit about Botswana in the podcast, since most people don't even know it exists. I moved to the U.S. in 1992, and so I missed the repatriation of the stolen Botswana man's body and, in fact, had not heard of it until your podcast. Uh, you also talked about snow globes in the podcast, and I chuckled at that. Several years ago, my husband and I found a cute snow globe in a Christmas store and decided we would start collecting snow globes. Shortly thereafter, though, 
we became fairly enthused about the fair trade and buying local concepts. And to our chagrin, all snow globes are apparently made in China. Every time I see a snow globe now, I run over and pick it up. And invariably, it has made in China on the bottom. I have yet to find a domestically made snow globe or a fair trade one for that matter. So if I do, we will resume our collection. But for now, we have stopped at one. Uh, thank you so much, Sina. That's similarly, I would never have come across that information. No, me uh, neither. So it is super good to have. And now we know. Learning is half, knowing is half the battle. I also, uh, I went and and searched. There's a a chain of stores called 10,000 Villages, which uh, sells um, stuff from around the world from, uh, like, in a fair trade context. I think it's actually run by missionaries, but I'm not sure. Uh, I went there immediately and searched snow globes to see if they had any, and they did not. They had various things that were globe-shaped, but none of them were snow globes. Yeah, that's one of those things I had not ever really thought much about, but I did start looking. We have a couple. We're not really collectors. They're like odds and ends that people have got us, bought us through the years. Like usually if they're related to something else that we like. And I too discovered, nope, nothing seems to be local or fair trade. They all have the made in China stamp and they are all imported. Uh, so that is super cool. Thanks to both of those listeners for really cool emails giving us info that is good to have and that we do not know, except now we do. And when you know better, you do better. Uh, if you would like to write to us with exciting knowledge, you can do that at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at History, at Facebook.com slash History, on Tumblr at MissedInHistory.tumblr.com, and at Pinterest.com slash History. You can visit MissedInHistory.Spreadshirt.com if you would like to purchase Missed in History gear for yourself or others. Even though now we're past the holiday season, maybe you're like me and you drag your feet a little and you still have some work to do in the gift arena. Uh, you can also come to our website, MissedInHistory.com, if you would like to read show notes or uh, see any of the archived episodes. We have pretty much everything there. Uh, show notes are from when Tracy and I came on through the current episodes uh and we have the occasional blog post and like i said all of that archived content you can also visit our parent site which is howstuffworks.com if you'd like to learn a little bit more or just explore a little bit more about the topic we talked about today you can type in the words classic toys and you will get the ultimate classic toy quiz so it's a kind of a fun way to cleanse your palate after talking about a white supremacist uh if you would like to do that or almost anything else, you can do that at our two websites, mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 